You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Good evening and welcome to the Agony Column. I'm your host, Rick Kleffel. Tonight on the Agony Column, a live roundtable conversation about the fates of literary arts in difficult economic times. We have a great cast with us here tonight. We have Dana Wordmuller and Marcus Cato from Shakespeare Santa Cruz. And we have uh, Marcus Cato. Yes, uh, it's great to be here. We also have um, Chris Watson from the Santa Cruz Sentinel. No longer from the Sentinel, but hello, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> Part of our story for tonight, Laurie R. King, local author and international bestseller. Good evening. Jeremy Lassen from Nightshade Books. Good to be here. Good talking with you. And Elizabeth Martinez, the director of the Salinas Library. Thank you for joining us. Great to be here. All right. Um, I'd like to start with you, Elizabeth. You have a very interesting story. Um, tell us a little bit about your um literacy drive who conceived it and how how has it been going we have a great story in salinas it's uh unusual to find a city that has as a goal a culture of literacy and that's a council goal the mayor as you probably know dennis donahue has a lot of great ideas and one of them was uh let's give every third grader a library card so when i arrived a little over a year ago that's what he said to me so i said, why not every student have a library card? Why just third graders? And that's where we started. We started uh, going from school district, and the key to that is probably what is a sort of heresy to libraries, and that is we eliminated an application. We just said, all kids probably want a library card. Why do we have to have an application? So we went uh, to superintendent of schools, and a simple process. They gave us lists of all their students, uh, class by class, school by school, and uh, we started last February, and by June we had 15,551 students who had library cards in two school districts, and now we've started in the fall with the third school district, a fourth, and by the end of June, all 31,000 mm-hmm. students from K through 12 in Salinas will have a library card. And it's, it's terrific because each school district has their own card, their own color, their own logo. And so you see kids that pull out their card and say, I'm from LSL and here's, you know, I've got a library card. So we're, we think we're the only city that's ever done that, that a library's actually said, uh, you don't have to apply. We assume you want a card <laughs> and we found a way to give you one. Um, I'd like to open this up to our panel. This is a really great opportunity to to expand reading at a time when reading is said to be, and it has actually been shown to be, on the decline. Um, Lori, you're you're a best-selling writer. Tell us about you know how library and students affect your work. You know, as a as a writer. I actually dedicated one of my books to to librarians mm-hmm. the world around who spend their <laughs> lives in battle against the forces of darkness <laughs> and, and, and want a, a great deal of, of affection on the part of librarians for some reason. Um, it's interesting that you should ask because I, I think that the figures show that the one group that is, oddly enough, increasing in reading um, number of hours per week is the young adult. That um, I think that the 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 20-year-olds are lost to <laughs> to those of us who write for a living um, until they enter their their more relaxed years of their 40s and suddenly discover what they've missed. But the young adults are catching them early. Uh, Jeremy, you're a publisher. Could you talk about uh, how you must do? You sell books to libraries? Absolutely. The when Nightshade first got started outreach to libraries and getting coverage in places like Library Journal was our major business model. We um, would get reviews in trade journals and librarians would buy our books. And when nobody at the chains or not many independent bookstores knew about us um, because of the kind of review and professional networks, libraries knew about us. And then we sold a lot of books. We sold enough to stay in business that way. And so I've 
always had a <laughs> really warm spot in my heart for <laughs> the efforts of librarians around the country. Chris, uh, I'd like to, to shift the focus to, to you with um, you, you have a, a different um, aspect look at this. Um, one of the things we've been hearing a lot about is the decline in coverage of books in newspapers. Tell us about your story and about the story of the Santa Cruz Sentinel. Well, everyone knows what's happened to the Sentinel. <clears throat> the oldest business in Santa Cruz has almost disappeared off the face of the earth. It's so thin these days. But after 30 years of writing about books, critiquing and interviewing authors, I was laid off. And there hasn't been, there won't be anything to take my place. It was a golden age. I, there was a time when we didn't have book coverage in this county, and now we're back to that age. But, but I, I, I have hope. The library gives me great hope, and I won't stop reading. And if they're still, you know, reading Twilight by the cardfuls, <laughs> you know, there's hope. I just find it a very difficult time. It's a paradigm shift, and I'm caught in the rotors. And I'm waiting. Uh, I I wish I weren't caught in the rotors, but things will. I think things will improve. I think it'll be a wonderful time. It's just a time of change. It, it interests me too that um, the a newspaper, which is after all uh, an object one holds in one hand and reads, would think that its readers who hold it in their hands and read it would not be interested in other things they could hold in their hands and read. Did right. you have any conversations with the people there about that? It's You know, I am, <clears throat> I blogged a couple times on the local Cruzio blog, and most of the response I got was from people who love the digital age. I talked to one of the book babes um, who also belongs to the National Book Critics Circle. And uh, she, we had an argument that she loved the digital age and she loved reading books on her Kindle. And I thought, are you kidding? I mean, there, there are two distinct elements of people who, who you know, the, the one who loved the digital age and the ones who, who don't. And... Well, I like them both. I wrote about tech for every day for every week for five years in a tech column. I think that kind of gets to the core of the problem is until the infrastructure that fully replaces the experience of the daily newspaper, the book columns, you know, that community-based column and writing and reviewing, it hasn't been fully replaced in the digital in the media and the Internet. There's not the functional equivalent of community newspapers on the internet and until there is there will be something missing from the dialogue but it is very hopeful because you know the the horizons are you know seemingly boundless but it's that in-between state it's that transition period but it's still this flat surface on the internet that you cannot hold you cannot touch you cannot smell you can't roll your fish up in it i mean there are lots of reasons that i love my my newspaper I, I, and I, I don't know if they'll be able to replace that or we will accustom ourselves to it it's it's a time of change absolutely yeah well i i sure don't want my fish and chips served out of a <laughs> out of a plastic view screen <laughs> Uh, Marcus Cato and Dana Wordmuller, you're with Shakespeare Santa Cruz. Now, you have a really remarkable uh, kind of success story that I think uh, gives us some some hope. So, um, first off, tell us why you needed the success story. What happened to you? Where? It, tell us about the predicament you were in, how you got there. Well, well actually, uh, before I do that, I just want to uh, give compliments to Elizabeth and her program at Salinas uh, Library. That sounds terrific. And I just wanted to mention, um, I mean, as I, as I was hearing your talk, I was remembering that the National Endowment for the Arts, one of the flagship programs of the NEA these days, one is uh, Shakespeare for New Generation, one is Jazz, and one is called a program called The Big Read. Yes. And you're probably yes. very familiar with this. Yes. And uh, the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, has done extensive studies on literacy and the impact it has on people's lives. And it's just amazing results. They found that people that read a certain number of books are more apt to volunteer, mm -hmm. they're more apt to donate money, 
They're more apt to attend sporting events. I mean, on and on mm -hmm. and on. I mean, it's it's sort of the definition of being a good citizen. Yes. You know, I think literacy is, is definitely part of that. So um, I think that just sounds terrific. That's, uh, that's good to hear, too, because we also know that people who read will probably not be unemployed, will probably not drop out of school, will probably not end up in, in prison. And so literacy, read, being able to read, is really the key to success in your life and being able to achieve that dream. So, yes, we agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth, have your circulation figures gone up? Yes, they have. Uh, we now estimate, well, we know that 45% of the people in Salinas have a library card. That's twice the national average, more than twice. And we expect that within this year, which is our centennial year, by the end of 2009, that will far exceed 50%. So we're looking at maybe 70%. Can you imagine 70% of the population having a library card <laughs> and coming great. to read? That's, that's incredible success. And we're open seven days, so you can come anytime you want. Well, that's really a remark. That is a remarkable story. And, and I, I'd like to get back to, to what Marcus was talking about, about how essential reading is to citizenship. And, and we're entering now a, a new administration, which I think is going to maybe help bolster some of that sense of citizenship. Uh, Dana. Tell us a little bit about what happened to Shakespeare Santa Cruz. Okay, great. And Marcus can chime in. Am I missing sure. something? Um, basically, we were, well, how much How much time do we have now? <laughs> um, I'll just back up a little bit. In, in that Shakespeare Santa Cruz, um, you know, we're in residence at UCSC, University of California, Santa Cruz. So we are a um, professional repertory theater company in residence, which means that it is our host campus. Um, so our, the past several years, um, we have not been hitting our financial marks as far as um, revenues and ticket sales, uh, contributions, and um, staying within budget. And we've had, for better or worse, worse, we've had the luxury, if you want to call it that, of, of the university having faith in us that they were willing to allow us to go forward with our operations, and they were keeping track of those deficits on the books for us for the past several years. Well we all know what's happening with the state of California, um, you know, and nationwide, but the, the uh, University of California facing their own cuts is no longer able to sort of kind of be flexible in how they support their, their host programs. And so in December, um, we were given the directive that um, we had to find a wider base of support or we would not be able to, in, in advance, or we would not be able to go forward with our 2009 season. Um, so we were given um, 10 days to raise $300,000. And um, it was really, I think, a way to, to see if the community really wanted us to be there. And um, so we had uh, a, a very interesting communications. We, ha we did have the luxury of time. We knew something was happening. So myself, I'm the marketing director, and I was able to you know, have a few different press releases um, in draft form ready so that when we got the directive, we knew kind of we'd be ready to hit the ground running. And we did. And uh, for those that don't know, um, at the 10-day mark, um, we raised $417,416, which was amazing. And so we now are hitting the ground running, going forward with our 2009 season. Um, but I also want to emphasize that it's it's not a it's not a pass for the long run. We 2009 will be a critical season for us to meet those those revenue and expense goals that are very clearly set and accepted by the university. And if we don't meet those, then um, you know it's going to be a challenge to continue for the long run. But we're very excited, and the number of people who stepped up um, were 2,050 people made up that. So if you do the math, um, you know they weren't giving huge sums. They were individual, private people. Most, for the most part, yeah, it was individuals, and it really was remarkable. I mean, in a typical year, we would get 600 to 700 donors or sponsors for an entire season. And as Dana just said, we, we received over 2,000 donations. So um, we, there are many, many people that had been interns or students at UCSC, or maybe they lived in the area and had moved out of the area that got in touch with us and donated money. So it was uh, remarkable vote of confidence, both locally and nationally. I mean, we got donations from Taiwan. We got donations from the United Kingdom. Uh, I mean, it really was remarkable, uh, the kind of the depth of it all, and, and very heartening for all of us at Shakespeare Santa Cruz. Well, this suggests there really is, uh, I think, at, certainly in this community, and I think at, at large in the nation, a much greater interest in literature, in literacy, and in reading than we're really given to believe or understand 
And I think a lot of, um, there's a lot of, but there is a lot of gloom and doom for uh, uh, some very good reasons. And, and I want to ask uh, Jeremy Lassen here to talk about one of the reasons for, for doom and gloom. Let's ratchet back a, a couple years and, and talk about something that I think still looms in, in the literary landscape, um, the publisher's group West Failure. Yeah, PGW was a, a very large distributor on the West Coast, and about four years before their bankruptcy, um, Avalon Publishing Group used to own PGW. They sold it off to a larger distribution company to fund an expansion of their publishing imprints. And what ended up happening is AMS, the parent company, had some underlying bad business practices. And while PGW, the distribution arm, that was that AMS owned was totally solid, fundamentally strong, um, and supported was the distributor for literally hundreds and hundreds of independent publishers. Um, AMS went bank, declared bankruptcy, and essentially all the AMS's creditors were able to take the pool of money that was owed to all these independent publishers. Um, and so Wells Fargo got paid off, and all the independent publishers who were clients of PGW had to accept you know pennies on the dollar mm-hmm. as part of the bankruptcy settlement. And this was in a time when the general publishing climate, while not doing gangbusters, was very solid. And a lot of these companies went out of business. Avalon was one of the big kind of mini conglomerates. You know, they had eight or nine very, you know, successful flourishing imprints. And having that kind of minor league, you know, system in place is really important for times now, like now, when the big publishers are cutting back. And they're cutting a lot of mid-list writers and kicking them to the curb. A lot of editors are losing their jobs. If you have a thriving independent publishing base to kind of pick up some of that slack um, where authors can find a, a home and still get national distribution and still find their, find their audience, um, you know, that's when you have a healthy situation even if the big ones are shrinking. And because of the PGW failure during flush times, there's a lot fewer – you know, homes out there for these very, you know, solid midlist writers who are now going to be left out in the cold. Um, the the number of editors and stuff who are, are losing their jobs over November, December um, has just been phenomenal. The shrinkage um, has just been terrifying, and that's going to result in a number of, you know, hundreds of orphaned authors and authors who aren't going to get new contracts. Um, and so I think it's in, important to kind of have independent publishers kind of try and step up their game. And so, I don't know. Lori, you've been with a, a major, you know, publisher for for many years now. Tell us what you've been hearing over the past year or so, as as things are, you know, as the comet heads gets closer to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just about to hit. I think. Um, yeah, it's a frightening time to be in publishing, and I think it's true for an awful lot of industries, but. Any industry that is based on people looking at the price of a of a hardback book and saying, um, "I don't know if I want to spend twenty five bucks this week," is going to be very vulnerable. So that um, some of the big chains are suffering. Um, a lot of the orders from um, Barnes and Noble and Borders Books are um, halved and quartered. Um, a lot of the smaller independents have already gone out of business and more and more of them are going every day. Very sad to see that Stacy's in San Francisco is, uh, is going to close in March um, because people are just not buying books. I think people are still reading and I think that you're seeing a lot of it in the library numbers. I think that um, this, this business of um, a bad economy has been very good for libraries and it's lovely to see. Libraries have always been extremely supportive of me. Um, but it, it is a time when everyone is, is taking a very close look at anyone who is on the edge. If you're marginal, if you're not a big seller, if you have larger advances than your earnings justify, um, you're going to seriously consider whether you're going to have a contract next time. Um, one of the problems I'm seeing at the moment is I have, I have two houses. I'm with um, Picador, which does some of my uh, paperbacks, and they're part of St. Martin's Press. And I'm also mm-hmm. with Bantam, which is a member of the Random House group. Um, Random House is undergoing a 
an, a reorganization that it would have done anyway. So it's very difficult for me to see um, how much of the publishing industry's upset is because of things that are, were already in the pipeline a year ago and how much is a result of the current economic uh, catastrophes. I think it's a little of both. Um, and, and I don't think that we're finished. I think they're still pruning out an awful lot of individuals. Well, you, you bring up a very good point that the reorganization at Random House right now is really the the fruits of the Bertelsmann um, Bantam Doubleday Dell merger from like four, from almost 11 years ago where two very large publishing groups essentially merged and there was a lot of overlap. They had like five or six mm -hmm. separate publishing units and a lot of overlap. And like you say, there was a reorganization that was bound to come. Yep. And so that was, you know, one of the last remnants of one of the last big mergers is this kind of, you know, elimination of overlap, which, you know, is really people's jobs, editors and writers who are, you know, no longer, you know, considered surplus. It also means that anyone who has books coming out in the next, <laughs> in the <laughs> next few months is really going to have a problem because the machinery that everyone was accustomed to has just had a cart and horse run through it. And so you you don't know um, <laughs> who's running your marketing campaign. Well, is there someone there? Do they, do they know who you are? Do you have a marketing campaign? Do you have a publicity campaign? Do you, do you have an editor this week? Um, it's it's not a not a comfortable time. But that's been going on for a while. I've talked to authors before who've mm. said that they've gotten no support from the publishing house, that on the West Coast they're on their own. Well, and yeah, it's been bad for a while, and now it's going to get even yeah. worse. Yeah. The Bantam Spectre, the science fiction imprint right now, the two senior editors, one was let go and the other is on maternity leave right now, and there's essentially nobody driving that ship at a time when everything's being realigned and so it's kind of scary to think about what's happening you know all these spectra is a major science fiction imprint and essentially within the machinery of random house they have no advocates for them you know so the next year's worth of who gets the marketing and publicity money is being determined when there's nobody steering that ship so and that's just one small example that's happening across the board and i wonder how much of what's changing will find its way onto the internet eventually that they'll start using the technology to take the place of all the people they need to get the word out to do well that's that's been happening right. you know quite a bit i mean i'm a right perfect example of you know without the infrastructure of the internet my publishing company couldn't have found the audience that it has it couldn't have grown as fast as it has i don't need a giant marketing department on fifth avenue to get my books out there you know, I have a guy with a Rolodex and the internet, and it works really well. <laughs> right. So, yeah, there's going to be more efficiencies like that. Publishing is very conservative, and just like you say, it's been changed that yeah. is a long time in coming. And I think that the one of the results is that um, authors have been expected to do a fair amount of self-promotion um, over the over recent years, and I think it's going to take even more so. I know that I have. Um, been organizing a, a campaign. I have, I have a new book coming out in April called The Language of Bees, and it happens that my, the 15th anniversary of a book that I wrote called The Beekeeper's Apprentice is in that same period. So we're starting a campaign, which Rick, you will hear about later, um, <laughs> called 15 Weeks of Bees. And it's entirely, mm. entirely internet-based. It's entirely fan-based. I have most of most of the various um, sections of the, the, the program are going to be run by people who just love the books, which, you know, it's so great to be able to, to put something like the Twitter or MySpace on people's hands and say, you, you go for it yeah. and run. So. Yeah. You know, we were amazed by the, the power of the Internet in our emergency fundraising campaign in December. And, uh, I mean, I, I think that was really one of the keys to our success. And... Um, uh, it you know we talked about it as a viral campaign, not quite knowing exactly what that meant at the time, but uh, the way I mean I don't think it could have happened ten years ago that we could have raised that amount of money in that amount of time, and I think just uh, spreading the word through uh, email, uh, there were like Facebook groups that were created. <laughs> 
um, you know, having a YouTube video of Marco Baricelli, the artistic director, talking about the situation. Uh, I mean, it really, we, we had uh, kind of tracking of the money we had raised. We had comments from people like Tom Stoppard, Olympia Dukakis, you know, who were concerned about us. I mean, it was just uh, a very live event on our, our website, and I think that really was a key to the success of the campaign. So I, I believe in the power of the Internet well, and, and getting the word out. That's definitely the story that you hear across so many different mediums. That, you know, the last presidential election was so informed by, you know, these social networking technologies that are, are very mature and in their third or fourth generation of, you know, maturity. And it makes a lot of different things possible, be it, you know, promoting books, getting, you know, your fans to be able to network and you know, crowdsourcing is a is a term that's thrown about, and I think it's, you know, directly applicable to Nightshade has, you know, published books that serve a very, you know, specific community in the classic weird fiction community, and they've been very <laughs> supportive, you know, for Amanda Wade Wellman and William Hope Hodgson books, and that, you know, is possible to reach the entire group of people who love William Hope Hodgson because of the internet and because of the passion of those people mm-hmm. who are on there and willing to talk about and help promote you know, the books or the author or, you know, the organization. We've started some online book clubs for youth, for teenagers, and find that that's a medium that they they like, they share. We've got blogs and they're talking about, you know, what they enjoy reading or they're getting somebody else excited about something they just heard about. And so we're doing both the traditional book clubs but online ones too. And, and blogging is really the way that generation mm-hmm. uh, they love shares, the gossip, participates, they? Yeah, they communicates love and, yeah. and all of that. So uh, in, this, in this economic time, uh, somebody said, and you're right, that libraries, are, our usage goes up. It always goes up in these economic spikes. But uh, more people are, are actually reading. And more. Uh, there was an article recently in the Washington Post that the uh, Latino population is reading more and more fiction now. Hmm. And, uh, and bilingual fiction, because there's more authors, there's more cultural materials out there. So I think we're finding new audiences. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's a good time for libraries. And, uh, and this is Dana from, from Shakespeare. And, and I think this goes back to what Jeremy was saying earlier about that transitionary period. Um, you know, I'm, I work in marketing. And so my challenge right now, and of course, we're marketing a pretty old product in, you know, Shakespeare plays. <laughs> so it's that, that, you know, that sort of um, challenge to make that transition by, with, through traditional media, you know, the Sentinel. Um, tri- a lot of our, our uh, patrons get their information through traditional means. Um, we're also, you know, trying to avoid the, the grain of the arts or at least work around that. And so we are looking at these more high, you know, the, the, the high tech ways of communicating. But there is that gap. So you have to kind of be schizophrenic about how you communicate to people. But ultimately, it sounds like all of us, all of us have a traditional product, whether it be books or live theater or, you know, reading libraries, um, which we're so passionate mm-hmm. about. Um, but we have to be flexible in how we get people to our product. But we have to be flexible with the funding, too. Yeah. And that's uh, the thing. Is patronage is how you got money this last time, individual patronage. What about foundations, too? I mean... Yeah, it's... I mean, for a theater company, I mean, typically the, the way you would make your budget is half is through ticket sales. Only half really comes through ticket sales. And um, the rest has to come from in individual business donations or foundation support. So in times like this, I mean, it's interesting that individuals are the people that really step up and help you through these hard periods of time. I think foundations, you know, their investments are down. We've already heard from various foundations because of their investments and their endowments that they're going to reduce their funding for next year. Businesses, it's very volatile, the kind of support they give you. So it really is the individuals that you have to rely on, you know, times like this, I think, to to get you through the the difficult uh, stretches. I think that's true, too, for libraries. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for that $50 million endowment. I want somebody in this area to come up and step up to that. Do the foundations cut out arts first? Uh, You know, it really, that's not really my experience. I think that a lot of the foundations, I think they uh, apportion a certain... Uh, amount of their money to the arts if they give to the arts and not all foundations do uh, you know we're lucky in Santa Cruz County to have uh, Hewlett and the Packard Foundation be big supporters of the arts so I don't think um, they're necessarily cutting out their their support of the arts in fact I don't think they are at all but I think that they have to reduce their funding across the boards to everything in a, in a time like this 
We're going to take a, a brief break here um, to do some announcements, and then we'll be right back with a literary roundtable. Thank you for joining us on the Agony Column. We have with us Dana Wordmuller, Marcus Cato, uh, Chris Watson, Lori King, uh, Jeremy Lassen, and Elizabeth Martinez. We'll be right back. Join us Tuesday for coverage of the Obama inauguration. Starting with Morning Edition, NPR will carry you along with the crowds on Washington, D.C.'s streets and the National Mall between the Capitol Building and the Washington Monument, the anticipation, the preparations, the expectations, and the people from all over the nation who are gathering in Washington for this inaugural event. NPR will be there, and you can be too, Tuesday from 3 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. here on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. Support for the Agony Column is by Capitola Book Cafe. Marty Horowitz discusses her book, A Course in Happiness, Mastering the Three Levels of Self-Understanding that Lead to True and Lasting Contentment, Thursday, the 22nd at 7.30 at Capitola Book Cafe. Details at 462-4415. Let's get back to our literary uh, roundtable. Elizabeth, I wanted to talk to you uh, about the kinds of books that you're um, mm. able to work with with the kids because I think there's for a long time there's been a big gap. Now, now my sister-in-law teaches high school, and one of the things she tells me is that the kids really love uh, stuff like Chuck Palahniuk <laughs> and, and, and really wild and edgy stuff. You know, they, they want their, their fiction to have all the things that we want to try to strip from it. They want the sex, <laughs> the drugs, the rock and roll, and the coarse language. So could you talk about the kind of books that you're able to promote within the library system? Do you just say, here it is. It's, it, it's the fight club. Read it. <laughs> or Captain Underpants, you yeah. know, is very, very popular. Or anime. We have a manga collection is probably mm -hmm. one of our most popular collection for teens and and high school kids and we can't keep those in stock and we recently got a survey that said that that was the number one type of wow. book that was checked out at the Salinas Public Library and was manga so we knew we did we'd struck gold there because we just started that collection recently we've we provide a variety of material, you know, everything that we possibly can. We're trying to market it. We've created new marketplaces in the library and people, one of them told me recently that they can't get past the marketplace of new books to the, you know, traditional collection because everything's there that's popular and, but we do DVDs and CDs and it's uh, popular culture. So such a wide range with uh, teenagers, it's manga with the young kids. Uh, fantasy and we're starting all kinds of reading programs uh, one of the, the highlights of our literacy program is actually to help families build their own library collection mm -hmm. so we give away books and so we get grants so we can give them books and that's that's been have you ever seen a little kid who hasn't had books at home and suddenly you're giving them something and sometimes we have raffles and sometimes you know we have enough to give to everybody and that is the best gift you can give to somebody so we think that building collections at home for families is a way to start that tradition of reading. Uh, story time yesterday at the, at the Cesar mm. Chavez Library, we had 380 families mm. and kids for Martin Luther King program. And uh, those, those families and kids, these women with strollers and fathers holding little kids, and they waited four hours through four different storytellers to and also to to get their they had a ticket a raffle ticket so they could get a book and take it home they waited four hours you know for the <laughs> raffle so you know how important it is to a lot of uh, families to build their own library collections and it's tactile you're buying into it yes when you own that you own that experience <laughs> I, I always loved it when my kids were young i used to do a lot of work with the home and school club and one of the great joys was the RIF giveaway three times a year. The Reading is Fundamental yeah. is a federally funded mm -hmm. program that gives away free books to kids. And the kids would come in and say, you mean we get to keep these? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. We started a bookmobile just uh, two weeks ago. And it has limited uh, stops so far. But everywhere we go, whether it's, you know, Creek Bridge, which is a... Uh, a higher income area or it's the Alicell and the bread box which is a lower income area they're waiting you know it's like they know what that means they know that this book 
you know, this library on wheels brings books to them. But there's a great competition for their attention today. Well, there is, and I think that that's part of the challenge. I mean, definitely me as a publisher, I I share your your preference for the tactile dead trees and ink and, (laughs) you know, the smell of it. And that's my experience that I love. But there are entire generations, my younger siblings and, you know, who have grown up carrying around a Nintendo DS or a cell phone or an electronic gadget all their lives. And, I mean, with things like the iPhone or the PSP, that's how they consume entertainment. You watch movies on it. You read blogs on it. Well, the Japanese woman who started the novels. Right, the cell phone Mm -hmm. novels. And so I think there's a whole generation of people growing up who don't share our biases of this is an idealized form to consume fiction. Mm -hmm. And so as a publisher, I'm trying to, you know, keep it, keep in the back of my head that, well, constantly as a publisher, I have to know that my biases and my preferences aren't what the entire entirety of the marketplace shares. And so when it comes to eBooks, I'm always trying to think, what is the best way to ebooks i see as an opportunity to get mm-hmm. new readers to get readers to get people who might otherwise mm-hmm. be playing a game or watching a tv episode on their iphone might instead be you know reading the new laurel king novel or any any book that i publish right. if i can make it available on a platform like that that's an opportunity to gain new readers and so it's a transition time but i'm trying to you know look past that transition time or help create the infrastructure we so, started a digital arts lab Oh, We're one nice. of three public li- uh, libraries in the country that have a digital arts lab. You can come in, you can create your own music, mm-hmm. you can make a mm-hmm. film, you can write a book, you can oh. design fashion, oh. and that's pulling in a lot of youth, especially or young adults in their 20s, who don't have that outlet. It's an expensive uh, proposition. It's also career building. You know, they love technology, they like the medium and such, so we're, we're watching them go from Guitar Hero and the Xbox to the Digital Art Lab and create their and own music. A, that's absolutely what I've observed. My wife teaches at a local community college, Skyline yeah. Community College, and, you know, these 18-year-old kids who are coming up and, you know, editing together video and writing scripts and, you know, then able to find an audience posting it on YouTube, right. there's an immediacy to the feedback that it's really helping you know, generate an interest in, you know, creative endeavors and at the same time give them these enormous tools to use in the, you know, skills. I was amazed watching some of these really complex video edits and it's just amazing what, you know, the little tools iMovies, or three mm-hmm. of them will get together, and with a keyboard, they'll start c- creating songs. You know, yeah. they're composing. And that's that creativity. You know, is something we have to nurture too, because this new generation. They so maybe this roundtable is about teaching us what we need to know, <laughs> <laughs> bringing us into the. You know, uh, really, it's very difficult when you have a set of skills. And the world that you're in doesn't fit the, that those skills. They, yeah, it's. Very well, I think hard. that happens on the personal level, and as mm-hmm. you're seeing, like at like you know you were talking about at Random House, right. these changes are a long time in coming. The set of skills of a very large media conglomerate that does one thing very well is not as efficient as it was, or it's not those skills don't fit the way they did 15, 20 years ago. And so I think from the personal up to the you know corporate media level, things are changing very fast. And that's kind of why I have access to the marketplace with my publishing company. So I try to be a glasses half full kind of guy and see the possibilities there. Well, one thing I think we do have here between the libraries and Shakespeare Santa Cruz, we do have the both of these speak to the power of actually touching and doing something. When you go and see a play, you're there, you're looking at real people on a real stage. When you're in the library, you're touching real books. And there's an elemental draw to that that I think that as we go forward, um, these kind of theater projects are going to draw people to books. And people who come to the library to... um, tweeze around on the keyboards and, and, and edit iMovies are going to see actual physical books. They'll be there. And I think that it's, it's not unlikely that they can be uh, seduced by the power of this stuff because uh, although a book is an old form of technology, it really is a kind of technology and it really is not yet outdated. I mean, yeah, there is no ebook that does anything that a real book does. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And, and just thinking about theater for a second, that um, – I mean, there's something about the act of congregating in one place with other people 
to witness something uh, that has, it's a profoundly human experience. It's, uh, it's uh, Paul Whitworth, uh, the former artistic director of Shakespeare Santa Cruz, used to talk about the collective imagination, the collective imagination of a group of people as they watch a play. And uh, it, it changes what's happening with the performers. Uh, you know, there's a conversation, there, there's an in-relation between the performers and the audience, which is really a human thing. It's a human need, I think, that people have to experience that. And uh, we're, we're certainly trying to embrace the digital age as much as we can. Uh, but we think that we're also trying to lead people to that fundamental experience we think that they, they need to have in It'll theater. It'll be mo more important as the digital age gets stronger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The need for community, the need for the library, the place for us to gather with, with real human beings. Well, uh, not a message board. And the know. way you said it, too, a place to gather, because where else do you find knowledge, creativity, ideas? Where, else, where do you go and find all of the possibilities to dream, all the knowledge of the world, all of the ideas? Where, the only libraries have that. Yeah, in a time when so much of our public space is commercialized and corporatized and owned and has various restrictions on, like, as you touched on earlier, what is acceptable for, you know, the mall courtyard or food court, you know, it's actually much freer in a public library. You know, kids have much more access to act out on what they want without artificial restrictions. Um, you know, so those kind of public spaces that are open are, are very rare. So we need more. How do we get more? <laughs> well, you know, there's... And where are they? I mean, you know, how does the city arts create that kind of a space or... How does a library create a space outside of the library? I well, you go online. Yeah, I think <laughs> that's so. true. Meetup.com yes. has been a great place. I've I've met some people through uh, that meetup.com, the well, local and, meetup. And, you, you know, the, too. Yeah, yeah. the social the social networking tools that we were touching on earlier, when they stop in the virtual world and they don't continue on and facilitate, mm -hmm. you know, face to face meetings and communities mm -hmm. that you know, meet and come together, you know, that's when they're not fulfilling their, their full potential. Yeah. And so when those kind of electronic communications and message boards and blogs allow, you know, the creation of groups of people who then do meet, yeah. who then do congregate. You know, in, in theater architecture, actually the latest development is um, there's almost as much space sometimes for people to gather, have a place to sit and talk, have a cup of coffee. Um, as there is right. devoted to the actual, uh, you know, producing the theater. Like if you've, anyone who's been to the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, which is a stunning, stunning mm. building. I mean, there are restaurants and all kinds of nicks and crannies where people can get together to talk because it, it, it is primarily a social thing that has to happen for the art to really live, I think. Yeah, I think we're finding that on the, um, on, on the, in the virtual world. Um, I have a, virtual book club that meets and we discuss a book every month and it's been really interesting to watch that over the last two years develop as a community I mean those people know each other and they talk to each other and when someone new comes in they welcome them and they say oh you know who are you where do you live what is your background that sort of thing and what's even more fascinating is when there's the opportunity to actually physically get together such as there was a crime conference in um, in Baltimore and there must have been 20 of these, mostly women, um, came there for this conference and met. And here's these people who have really nothing in common except Laurie King's books. And they had a marvelous time together. They all, you know, they bonded like they were sisters that they hadn't seen each other in years. And they were just on and on and on as a, as a community venture that started as an electronic presence. One thing, this is Dana again. Um, one thing we did last year, which I'm hoping to continue this year, is we're trying to more, yeah, connect... Um, what we're putting out on the stage to the literary world, to, to book clubs. What we did last year, for example, working through um, Bookshop Santa Cruz, is we invited book clubs to read one of our plays. Um, we really emphasized the two non-Shakespeare's um, for a variety of reasons, practicality and some other things. Um, and they would read the book in their book club, um, and then we would send somebody from Shakespeare Santa Cruz to go and talk with them. So it was a very um, in-depth, they loved it, loved it, loved it. 
and very in-depth. They got to read the book, discuss it amongst themselves, and then really talk to somebody who's taking it to the next step and putting it on stage. And for example, this coming um, summer, one of the plays we're doing is Julius Caesar. Well, what book club wants to read Julius Caesar? That's a bit of a, you know, that's a tough nut. So what's being recommended by um, one of our long-term um, dramaturgs, Michael Warren, is a book called Roma, which is a historical fiction about the time of Julius Caesar. So we'll be, you know, introducing that idea to the local book clubs, perhaps the libraries, as an option to really have that in-depth experience and then come to see a live play- performance that's related to what they're experiencing. So we're, we're finding that people are interested in, in, in deeper experiences as opposed to more lateral surface kinds of things. So, so those people who are hooked into the literature, the live theater, those hands-on visceral experiences, we're trying to give them more options to really create a satisfying arts experience. And it's exciting for us also that we're doing some uh, contemporary plays now. We have living playwrights. It's such an exciting idea for us. And last year, Itamar Moses, who is uh, who grew up in Berkeley, California, uh, we did one of his plays last summer, Bach at Leipzig, and he went to Capitola Book Cafe. And I think there were 125 people there to hear him speak. And it's just uh, fantastic now to bring the living playwrights into the community and have that in-depth experience like Dana was talking about. Well, that's that's really encouraging because... A brief digression here, but all the the gloom and doom about literacy rates or number of people who read books um, as opposed to other you know movies and television and stuff like that has been a, a reoccurring downer for a long time now. <laughs> and I think what's really interesting is, I mean, I have a theory of the most cost-effective way to entertain the largest number of people over the course of history from, you know, and technology impacts that. And there was a time when theater was the most cost-effective way to entertain the largest number of people. So you can make the most money for your creative input via live theater. And then that sort of changed in the advent of the printing press and high literacy rates. And so then you had magazines and, you know, Charles Dickens was, the magazines that Charles Dickens was being published in had circulation rates that, like, you know, Entertainment Weekly would, you know, drool over. And so there were, like, these throwaway printed forms that were the most cost effective. And then you started getting in broadcast mediums for a while. Radio was, like, king. And then television. And still is. And still is. <laughs> and then you, but then you had movie and television supplant these printed forms, and radio was part of that, supplanting these printed forms. Mm-hmm. But what I find interesting is even though theater hasn't been at the center of that most cost-effective way to reach the largest number of people, you know, center of, of Western culture for a long time, it's still very viable. There's still community in theaters and people writing plays and producing plays and finding an audience for them. And so when I'm in my darkest hour of publishing and I'm like, only 3% of the population reads <laughs> more than two books a year, I still have that, well, but opera is still around and theater is still around and it may not be as culturally central as say you know movies or television shows but it's still vibrant and it's still viable and just from a demographic standpoint when i look at um book publishing three percent of the population that reads habitually is the largest english language literate population in the history of the world and even if reading as a percentage of the population continues to decline population growth means that it's still increasing and it will be commercially viable to you know have novelists write books and find an audience for the, for the long term just from that kind of population curve so and books are still here you know all through all this this these centuries books are still here the written word is still here and we find that uh, Part we've received a huge grant uh, in collaboration with the National Steinbeck Center to have a centennial program to look at the history of Salinas in the last hundred years, mm-hmm. uh, what people were reading, what was going on in the, in the town, and we've we've started looking at it in quarter periods of time. The first quarter, when we did uh, pre-1909 to 1934, we had people come and tell their own stories. We mm-hmm. had the tribal chairwoman from the Esalen, Custodian, uh, Olani tribe come and uh, share their stories of what Salinas meant to them as a land. We had the Californios and we had the Mexican era. We had this, the immigrants with the, the, the Swiss immigrants and the Japanese and the Chinese. And we found that we could, the library could bring all of these populations together to 
because we had something in common, and that's a shared history. And we wanted to have a shared experience with that. So we're now going into the second era of times of trial a little more, because it's going to take in World War II and the Oki migration, migration and depression and the Bracero program and such. Uh, but to look at what people were reading at the time, like 1984 was going on at the same time that there's news, news articles in Salinas, the headlines are saying there's a red scare or the lettuce strike or, you know, bring in the, the National Guard. Um, we, by learning about history and having the library bring us all together, we, we learn more about each other. We can understand more. That civic engagement is a role that we are embracing uh, for, all asp for all members of the population. And that's why with youth we do the online book club, talk about what was going on then. But bringing in old timers and people who've experienced it and looking at the books, um, we learn. You know, and that's really that kind of dialogue is what we need to, I think, do more of. And uh, we're bringing people together to do that. I think the one thing that's interesting, there's a phrase you use, shared experience. And, and what I want to focus on is the experience because the reading experience is, I think, very different from almost any other experience mm -hmm. except for the theater experience. And, and they share something which it involves a, a lot of work on the part of the reader. And we have to, when we read, we have to actually kind of work, and, and that makes the reward a lot greater. And also, I think it's a, a it's a better bargain. You talked about a twenty five plonking down for a twenty five dollar hardback, but look, I mean, you can you're going to spend twenty five bucks to go to the movies, and that's going to last two hours, and it's gone. You spend twenty five bucks on that hardback, you got a good week of reading. You know, if you if you take it easy and and you know sip your coffee, and I think oh, that I agree, <laughs> I, I do, I do honestly agree. <laughs> well, you bring up an interesting point. I had an argument with one of my one of my authors, uh, Paolo Bajicalupi, and I argued about this very idea of. I was kind of a more populist argument where I was saying, you know what, that's just an elitist argument to say that written form is inherently better than other visual forms. I mean, look, there's great writing that's going on in television right now. Some of the best television ever written has been going on in the last five or ten years. And it's just as, just as much weighty, great characterization and stuff like that. And it prompted both of us to do a lot of research and <laughs> the just the – biological function of reading and the brain activity and the brain state that you go into while reading is very, very different from the brain activity that goes on while you're watching a video pre produ production. And so actually Paolo opened up my eyes and, you know, got me to say, well, yes, that is a unique experience that is not just class-based. And I saw that, I thought that was really interesting because, you know, on-screen videos kind of induce a more hypnotic dream state and reading introduces a more cognitive state. Well, Bach at Leipzig, though, boy, did that make me think. That was a great play. I just adored that yeah, I was play. I was going to say, I would argue, uh, too, that I think uh, live theater is somewhere in between that, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. you know, where you certainly can't look at it like you're watching a movie at home and on your couch. And that's why you have to, it's engaging. You're pulled in, you, you're asked to think, you're asked to, to especially Baca Leipzig, as Chris is saying. And, but as reading, it's more solitary. And, but I, I know when I've read a, a good book, I, I look around, I cast around. It's like, okay, who can I talk to about this? And I think um, the live theater experience gives you that immediate community that you can speak to, you know, people you went with or people who else who saw it in the community. Um, you know, and, and so I think it's a kind of a hybrid and, and maybe a link to literature and the other forms of visual entertainment. And I think, too, that, that what you're saying is right, but I think also that there's a, a shared experience between people who read books. Laura, you were talking about the, your fans who gathered, 20, 20 pe women who had nothing in common, knew nothing about and one another. And the occasional man. There's this idea of a, a shared reading experience is, is a very powerful thing. When you get two people in a room who have read the Lord of the Rings trilogy from cover to cover, whether they're 15... 50 or 80, they are all, they have a powerful bond to one another. And I, I think that's something that, that Elizabeth has been working with. Well, and also think about children. When you get a group of children at a story time and you're going through, you know, you know the, the motions of turning pages and looking at the, the word and looking at the, the, the concepts and the uh, illustrations, they are learning together, and we know uh, that pediatricians tell us that 
children, if they're not read to from, uh, when they're young, by the time they get to uh, kindergarten, they have half the vocabulary of the child that was read to. And, the, and pediatricians also gauge motor skills with, you know, turning pages or turning a book upside down or, you know, some of those uh, activities. So it, it, has, it's, it has a value that goes far beyond just the shared experience and just the word. It has a physical uh, value, too. But little kids, have you seen them together and they're all, turn the page, turn the page, or you ask a question, you know, what did the, uh, we were just reading the duck that ran for president, you know. And, and <laughs> certainly that, that, that experience that I, I always refer to as a sense of childlike wonder. It was very important to me. I was read to, you know, in a preschool environment for my parents and that, you know, imprinted me for the rest of my life. And to, it's like you talk about when you get other people who have that shared experience of a text, because written words aren't as central and published books aren't as central, there's not – it's very difficult to find, you know, to wander into the, you know, your job at the water cooler and find 10 other people that have read the book that you read. You always have the experience where, oh, look, you know, nine people out of ten have seen this movie or know about that TV show. And, you know, so they talk about this media that's – or these stories that are in other forms that are, you know, more dominant. And so it makes that kind of shared experience when you get that group of readers together, virtually or otherwise, all the more exciting, you know, when well, I can find. You know, it's interesting you consider that. Uh, I mean, Shakespeare is really uh, an author that is simultaneously literature and also theater. I mean, it's very interesting to consider that when his plays were first done, I mean, they're really performance-based. It was a kind of curious idea at that time to actually write the words down and publish them for other people to read. Uh, I mean, that was done after he, he died, um, that uh, the folio was, was published. But um, at that time, the words were written down so the actors could memorize them and, and uh, get ready to do the, the roles in, in the repertory company. Uh, but it's interesting that that's, that's kind of migra migrated to a, a, a place where people think of it sometimes in some circles almost more of literature than as theater. Mm -hmm. There was a lovely uh, piece in the San Francisco um, book section today that had a photograph of Barack Obama reading to kids a few years ago in Chicago. And uh, it was by Ishmael Reed who wrote this uh, article about um, perhaps, perhaps this election will see um, a change when it's cool to read. Hmm. Well, you know, it, and I think it's all really too soon to, to you know, put a gravestone on reading. And when you will talk about things that are culturally central, I mean, think about Harry Potter. You cannot escape the damn kid. <laughs> and, and, and this is a book. Now there are movies and such. And also think about uh, the immense popularity of Lord of the Rings. Uh, again, these, are, these just happen to be fantasy series. But, I mean, they're still um, – the movies brought back – I think uh, there's a – and ain't you know a what a fifty-year-old book that's like a, three books that's fifteen hundred pages of pretty dense prose. That's a, pretty well, amazing. That, <laughs> it comes down to a cultural, do, you know, what do we value as a culture? Um, kids are taught to. It's good that you learn to read, that you read, and you know, there's a Puritan worth work ethic that says reading fiction for fun is you know not valuable. You know, I know, I know people who if it's fiction, well, it's just made up stories and there's no value in that. I, I read some nonfiction. I read history, but it's made up. And there's a certain kind of, I don't know, we have to teach our kids to value value it as not as something childish, but as something as, as human. Because there's been young adult books that have been very popular for years. And it's does that reading experience of these kids growing up reading Harry Potter, do they translate and, you know, read fiction habitually through their 20s and 30s? and onward because that's that's the tough part you know kids are marketed to and libraries are there to, to capture kids imagination but then their legs are cut out from under them well and what better shared experience for a child what better memory for them to have than a parent reading to them you know starting as a little kid and even if it's just one book before you go to bed but you remember that and you start that tradition you start that legacy of uh, of literature and reading, but also shared. You know, it's your mm -hmm. it's something comfortable, loving, and uh, and important to you, and that memory will stay with you. We've been had a wonderful roundtable. Thank you for joining me. We've had uh, Dana Wardmuller and Marcus Cato from Shakespeare Santa Cruz. 
Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank Great you. to be here. Chris Watson, the uh, ex-book reviewer for the Santa Cruz Sentinel. <laughs> Thank you. We've had uh, Lori King, uh, author, local author. Hi. <laughs> Jeremy Lassen from Nightshade Books. Good to talk with you. And, uh, and Elizabeth Martinez, the director of the Salinas Library. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. You've been listening to the Agony Column on KUSP 88.9 FM. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.